everyone, and welcome to the War on Palestine podcast. This is episode seven, recorded and published on November 21, 2023. I'm one of the co-hosts, Nura Erekat, joined by Ziad Aburrish and Bassam Haddad. We continue to offer this podcast as a digest of news that's happening on the ground, recognizing that for so many activists, scholars, analysts, and people who care about what's going on in the past few weeks, and especially the past few days, has been overwhelming in terms of keeping track, but especially the emotional toll. We want to offer this resource to consolidate and keep track of developments on several fronts, including the ground in Gaza and the rest of Palestine, at the United Nations and across the diplomatic front, in the geostrategic sense, with grassroots activism, as well as the backlash to it across multiple geographies and the U.S. media landscape. While the impetus for this program was the dramatic escalation of Israel's violence in the Gaza Strip, we want to emphasize, as we have individually done elsewhere, that Israel's campaign against the Gaza Strip is not Gaza-specific. It is Palestine-specific. In the end, what is happening in the Gaza Strip today is an intensification of the decades of settler colonialism and apartheid practices of the Israeli state, even if by many accounts one of its most violent iterations ever. Ziad? We are on day 45 of the Israeli siege, bombardment, and ground invasion of the Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip. As many listeners know, the Israeli war on hospitals in northern Gaza led to the collapse of their services and communications as of November 10th, including those of Al-Shifa Hospital, the largest and central hospital in all the Gaza Strip. The Palestinian Ministry of Health has been unable to properly update the death and injury count since then, which at the time stood at over 11,000 Palestinians killed, 68% of which were women and children with an additional 6,500 Palestinians reportedly missing and most likely beneath the rubble, including 4,400 children. The November 10th casualty figures also includes over 27,000 Palestinians injured. More than 10 days since the last casualty update, some estimate the death toll to have exceeded 15,000. Given the continued acceleration of Israeli bombardment, ground invasion, and the onset of hunger and disease due to the Israeli-imposed siege on the Gaza Strip. The Israeli military raided Al-Shifa Hospital, detaining and interrogating a number of medical staff patients and internally displaced persons taking shelter in the hospital. We are now on day six of the Israeli military raid of Al-Shifa. As of November 19th, 19 health workers and 259 patients remain in Al-Shifa, according to the Ministry of Health in the Gaza Strip. They face critical shortages of power, water, and medical supplies. This includes two people in intensive care, 22 dialysis patients, 32 stretcher patients, and 27 patients with spinal injuries, who will supposedly be prioritized for the next evacuation. The hospital is no longer operational and is not admitting new patients. The Israeli military has continuously claimed that Al-Shifa and other hospitals are legitimate targets due to their use by Hamas. This claim of Hamas use has been repeatedly denied by hospital staff, patients, and internally displaced persons taking shelter there, a denial reinforced by the communications of the International Organization Doctors Without Borders, It is worth noting that the Israeli military justification of first bombing Al-Shifa and then raiding it has constantly changed. Initially claiming hostages were being held at Al-Shifa, the Israeli military then claimed the medical facility housed an underground bunker and tunnel system that was the command and control center of Hamas. 
after the raid, neither has been proven. In fact, former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak admitted on CNN that it was the Israelis that initially built whatever underground infrastructure existed in Al-Shifa for use by the hospital staff to compensate for the limited surface area of the medical compound. Such a claim took CNN host Christian Amanpour by surprise, yet she failed to question how then the existence of any alleged footage of an underground infrastructure was indeed proof of Hamas use, let alone as a command and control center. The Israeli military has now shifted its focus to the Indonesian hospital in Beit Lahia of North Gaza, which Israeli tanks have surrounded and aerial bombardment has struck for the fifth time since October 7th. As was the case during the besiegement and eventual raid of Ashifa, the World Health Organization has condemned the attack on the Indonesian hospital. Doctors Without Borders has raised concerns over the safety of its own staff at the hospital, which has corroborated reports of the hospital's encirclement by Israeli military forces. As a reminder, Israeli bombardment has damaged or destroyed at least 45% of all housing units and more than 60% of all educational facilities in the Gaza Strip. Israeli aerial bombardment, artillery attacks, live fire on hospitals, combined with shortages of fuel, medicine, safe water, and other essential resources, have resulted in hospital bed capacity across the Gaza Strip declining from 3,500 beds before October 7th to 1,400 beds presently. This shortage is compounded by the exponential increase in those seeking treatment since the assault on the Gaza Strip began. Since October 7th, the Committee to Protect Journalists has preliminary documentation of the death of at least 45 Palestinian journalists in the Gaza Strip, making it the deadliest period for journalists since CPJ began gathering data in 1992. According to the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, the Israeli bombardment of the Palestinian population of the Gaza Strip since October 7th has displaced approximately 1.7 million Palestinians, which accounts for over 70% of the population. Noura? The mass displacement of over 70% of the Gaza Strip's 2.3 million Palestinians includes the attempted ethnic cleansing of northern Gaza, where Israel's forced population transfer continues to reduce the population in the areas north of it, of Gaza City. Since November 7th, members of the food security sector have been unable to deliver assistance in the north as access has largely been cut off. Due to the lack of cooking facilities and fuel, people are resorting to consuming the few raw vegetables or unripe fruits that remain. No bakeries are active due to the lack of fuel, water, and wheat flour, as well as structural damage. Wheat flour is reportedly no longer available in the market. Also in the north, livestock is facing starvation and the risk of death due to the shortage of fodder and water. Crops are being increasingly abandoned and damaged because of the lack of fuel which is required to pump irrigation water. The Israeli military continued calling and exerting pressure on residents of the north to leave southwards through a corridor along the main traffic artery, Salah Haddim Road. OCHA's monitoring team estimates about 25,000 people moved during the 24-hour period before November 19 and 20th, most of whom arrived at Wadi Ghazib by donkey carts or buses and some on foot. OCHA reports that Israeli forces have been arresting some people moving through this corridor. Others have reported that this is kidnapping, such as the uh, case of Mus'ab Abu Toha. 
IDPs interviewed by Ocha reported that Israeli forces had established an unstaffed checkpoint where people are directed from a distance to pass through two structures where a surveillance system is thought to be installed. IDPs are ordered to show their IDs and undergo what appears to be a facial recognition scan. According to an official with the Norwegian refugee uh, aid, uh, Musab Abu Tawha is being held in a detention camp outside of Gaza. The ICRC has no access to this camp or any prisons right now. Apparently, he and his family were trying to leave through Rafah on foreign passport since his young, youngest child, a three-and-a-half-year-old boy, was born in the U.S. and has U.S. citizenship and was instructed by the State Department to flee south and out through the Rafah border. According to the Ramallah-based Al-Damir prisoners' rights groups, Arrests are taking place 24 hours a day. Accordingly, most of the people from Gaza are being held at a military base called Said Taiman near Bir Saba or Bir Shiva in the southern Naqab Desert. On October 9th, uh, November 19th, the Egyptian border opened for the evacuation of 723 dual and foreign nationals and 67 wounded and sick people. Between the 2nd and 19th of November, nearly 8,000 dual and foreign nationals exited Gaza to Egypt. According to the U.S. State Department, around 800 U.S. citizens, permanent residents, and family members have left the Gaza Strip via Rafah crossing into Egypt. In a briefing on Monday, a State Department spokesman said there were still 1,200 left in Gaza to evacuate. As listeners are probably aware, Hamas and the other Palestinian organizations currently hold some 239 Israeli and foreign prisoners of war and hostages, at least 30 of them children. This count is separate from the four hostages Hamas released without conditions and the one prisoner of war the Israeli military claims it retrieved. Reporting by the New York Times, The Guardian, and other media outlets seem to confirm that Hamas has since, before the Israeli ground invasion, offered to release a large number, if not all, civilian women and children held hostage and other Palestinian uh, organizations in exchange for a ceasefire, among other demands such as humanitarian aid and a reciprocal, though numerically unspecified, release of Palestinian women and children held by Israel. There is no evidence that the current deal being considered and mediated by Qatar represents anything substantively more for the Israeli side than was on the case prior to the ground invasion and prior to the raid on Al-Shifa, the hostage deal that is currently being finalized, according to media resources, could have been achieved before the ground invasion, as well as before the dismantlement of the Al-Shifa hospital. This point is key, especially as news is emerging that there is no evidence of an underground uh, headquarters for Hamas beneath the Shifa hospital. Moving to other parts of Palestine and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, Israeli military and settler violence have killed over 209 Palestinians, including 53 Palestinian children, injured over 2,811 Palestinians, arrested over 1,000 Palestinians, displaced over 1,347 Palestinians through confiscating or demolishing their homes. Israeli military-backed settler violence in East Jerusalem and the West Bank has reached an all-time high. Since 7 October, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs has recorded 256 Jewish-Israeli settler attacks against Palestinians in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Israeli forces were either accompanying or actively supporting nearly half of all 256 Jewish-Israeli settler attacks on Palestinians in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Ziyad Nura 
How about if we discuss some of these matters before we close? Absolutely. Um, Noura, I'd like to begin uh, with you. Of course, uh, since October 7th, we've seen a number of statements by Israeli officials. IDF spokespersons have said that the emphasis is on damage and not on accuracy. The former head of Israel's National Security Council welcomed the possibility of epidemic outbreak in Gaza. The deputy speaker called for Gaza to burn. The agricultural minister called for a second Nakba. The defense minister said Israel should eliminate everything. The Israeli president said all Palestinians in Gaza are accountable. And the prime minister referred to Palestinians as the children of darkness and the Israelis as the children of light, while the heritage minister said a nuclear bomb should be dropped. And most recently in the Jerusalem Post in an op-ed, the Israeli minister of intelligence, Gila Gamlil, framed the voluntary resettlement of Palestinians as the most humane and politically effective uh, course of action with regards to the Palestinians of the Gaza Strip, also indicating that Israel would implement a permanent occupation of the Gaza Strip afterwards. I was wondering if you wanted to comment or think out loud with me about what these statements, but especially that of Gila Gamlil, indicates to us and how we should think about it. No, absolutely. I, I want to make a clear distinction between this last point by the uh, Minister of Intelligence and the former statements that you made. So they, they merit distinct um, distinct treatment. In the former case, uh, the, the quotes that you read for us indicate what many have, have uh, many legal scholars and scholars of genocide have categorized as the specific intent to destroy a people in whole or in part based on their national, ethnic, religious, uh, or racial grounds. And so this part I think is well rehearsed. The only thing I want to, to, to add to it and to, you know, to emphasize for the audience is that Israel is actually insisting that this framework that it's using, that, that, that the approach that it's taking is, is a, a form of security, that this is defensive force. So it's not saying that it's not being racist or that it's okay to say what it's saying. It's literally saying that what they are doing is commensurate with achieving Israel's security. And Israel's security in this case is defined as the ethnic cleansing of the Gaza Strip altogether, um, what they call turning it into a parking lot, not only destroying Hamas, but removing all of the Palestinians who could one day be part of any political formation that would dare to resist Israel's um, you know, necropolitical settler colonial regime of enclosing them in an open air prison indefinitely and placed on a subsistence diet. And this, this, this theme is one that actually extends back to Israel's establishment very much in its language of, of Plan C or, or, or Gimel Plan, where it also defined the aggressive attack on Palestinians as a form of defensive force. And so that we could see the through line of the definition of Palestinians by their mere existence their, uh, as an existential threat and therefore meriting the use of uh, lethal force, what they define as self-defense. This might be quite obvious to the audience, right? But it's never said. Instead, we're in a discussion where we highlight how racist what they're saying is or what they're doing is genocidal. But to actually point out that Israel has defined its security imperative as tantamount to ethnic cleansing, nothing short of that will suffice. So that 
the babies become you know terrorists or would be terrorists if they were allowed to grow up and to thrive that the children are similarly culpable that that an entire society is infected and the infection of course we know is is the will and the desire to live and to continue to struggle for freedom as to the second point uh the interior minister uh, the intelligence minister excuse me um comment about resettlement We've heard this from several right-wing um, fascist uh, ministers as well in the Netanyahu government who have basically framed an appeal that the resettlement of Palestinian refugees is a humanitarian concern, and they're even challenging the, the international community. If you're so concerned about Palestinians, take them now. The most humane thing that you can do is to take them now. And what's clear here, um, you know, without much, much probing is that this is a part and parcel of an ethnic cleansing plan to remove the population from the Gaza Strip, to frame it as humanitarian, and to not only to do that in, in the uh, humanitarian language, but then also to make it an international responsibility to do that. And failure to fulfill these ethnic uh, cleansing plans would be tantamount to double standards. You don't really care about Palestinians. Here we are exposing you once again for being anti-Semitic, for, take, uh, for uh, taking them and resettling them in this moment of humanitarian need. It is really important to get ahead of that before this, this new um, talking point is, is, is grown and uh, galvanized uh, against those who say no. These Palestinians, the only way in order to resolve this is that Gaza must be rebuilt. Palestinians must have a right of return. Those from Gaza return to their homes and those from other parts of Palestine should be returned there. And what I think is, is missing from the discussion also from um, analysts who are discussing whether or not Israel has a right to reoccupy Gaza again in a secure uh, framework of security is that this is literally the acquisition of territory by force once again and yet framed um, as, as defensive, uh, even as it's shielding ethnic cleansing. So with that said, yet I wanna ask if, if, one, if you had any thoughts on that, but if not, to shift um, our attention to President Biden's op-ed in the Washington Post, this uh, twin emphasis on the war um, you know, against Russia or, or, or uh, Ukraine's own struggle with the war against Palestine. What do you make of that discourse and his op-ed and the timing of it? Well, you know, um, a lot of analysis has come out about that and, and I'll share mine in a little bit, but I just want to emphasize the point that you're making about linking the security of Israel to the ethnic cleansing uh, of the Gaza Strip. Repeatedly, when U.S. Uh, government spokespeople, as well as others outside of the U.S., have been asked if they believe Israel is committing war crimes, if they believe Israel is committing crimes against humanity, their response has been Israel has a right to defend themselves. So I think we're also seeing the kind of connection, the legitimation of the connection between a, a false premise of Israeli security and a legitimation of uh, the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip in even some of the responses by U.S. Uh, spokespersons and by some other governments, uh, including that of Germany, uh, for that matter. Um, regarding the, the Biden op-ed, I mean, clearly this op-ed is in many ways a response to the dwindling support the Biden administration 
has for its position of rejecting and refusing and perhaps blocking a ceasefire at all costs. Uh, we see that uh, uh, today, um, uh, most recently, um, Senator of Oregon, Jeff Merkley, has become the second U.S. Senator after Dick Durbin of Illinois to call for a ceasefire. His language was quite explicit. Um, he said the ceasefire and the following negotiations must accomplish other essential objectives, including the release of hostages. Parting ways with the Biden administration and other supporters of Israel that claim that there should be conditions met before a ceasefire is implemented. But I think Biden's pairing of Israel's war on the Palestinian people, which is described as a war on Hamas, with supporting Ukraine against the Russian invasion is uh, uh, has a twofold goal. On the one hand, it's trying to muddy the waters, legitimate and justify what Israel is doing by recourse to the claims of self-defense that have been marshaled for Ukraine against the Russian invasion. On the other hand, I think we know from the past several months, if not year, that support amongst the U.S. political establishment for increased military and other forms of aid to Ukraine have dwindled. And as one colleague of mine recently put it, this op-ed and other discourses of trying to pair support for Israel in the war on Palestine and support for Ukraine against the Russian invasion is also about forming a broad coalition of people who would otherwise not support uh, the U.S. and Israeli war on Palestinians to support it in exchange for continued military and economic aid to Israel, uh, excuse me, to, to Ukraine. Of course, this blurring of the lines has not been helped by Ukrainian President Zelensky's own immediate condemnation of Hamas and the Palestinians and full-throated support uh, uh, for Israel and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, few in the Ukrainian uh, uh, opposition to the Russian invasion have expressed solidarity with the Palestinian people and opposed this collapsing of these two issues although we did see an open letter by a number of Ukrainian leftists uh, uh, clearly challenging the conflation. But this conflation has come full circle and full force to the center as the Biden administration continues to attempt to justify a position that is increasingly untenable. I mean, beyond rejecting a ceasefire because of the claim that that would reward Hamas, um, we should remember that every day a ceasefire is not supported, every day a ceasefire is not imposed, more Palestinians are killed, more Palestinians are injured, more Palestinians are displaced. Israel's quite clear plan for ethnically cleansing northern Gaza, if not all of Gaza, and reinstituting an Israeli occupation, a direct military, boots-on-the-ground military occupation, um, in northern Gaza, if not all of the Gaza Strip, continues. Um, and uh, that's the situation we're facing. I mean, the, the it's really frustrating because right now Israel is telling us everything that we as analysts or scholars have been unearthing for, for, for decades. Of, but they're saying the quiet part out loud for us. And rather than push back, as the Biden administration initially did, we see John Kirby today, in fact, now echo Israel's plans for resettlement in saying that this is not ethnic cleansing. And in fact, what Israel is doing is protecting itself against a genocidal threat 
And so rather than it being genocide, they're combating genocide by committing genocide. Anyway, it's it's the the reason that this has been so absolutely frustrating is that we are witnessing in real time, never before, as never before, um, because of social media, a genocide unfolding before our very eyes. And yet all of the international institutions, the legal institutions, international laws that have been in place in order to prevent it have actually proven inept, primarily because uh, of a colonial condition that has made it such that there are two sets of laws that apply to two sets of people. You know, I hate to reiterate the world, words of Carl Schmidt, but it's this idea that there was never international law, but a law for European society and a law for non-Europeans. And so rather than, and that's why for so many, you know, they're using the language, this feels like double standard, they feel gaslit, there's no equality, even for Palestinian lives, they don't matter. And yet, it's not merely a lack of equality and double standard. It's an entire colonial order that renders Palestinians and others who are subjugated to a racial colonial regime as, as marked for, for, for death so that we expect them to die and we produce the conditions by which they do die. In this situation, they haven't died quietly. And that is the objection that they will not die quietly. And that's, you know, it's 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 quite upsetting and, and mind boggling and more so because we have as a result of also amplifying the voice of Palestinians on the ground here in the United States, done something I don't think that's ever been done. 80% of registered Democrats support a ceasefire. When up 80% of Democrats agreed on anything. And yet that is not enough. That is not enough to mobilize more than, what's the numbers, Ziad? You were saying earlier the number is uh, 40 members of the House and two senators total out of 535. So we're talking about 42 out of 535 members of Congress who have who have, have reflected what the base uh, desires. And and I think, you know, in, in one of the recent polls that came out, um, uh, mentioning that Biden's approval rating is at the lowest it's ever been uh, and that for the first time some of the polls have Trump leading him and that this is a direct result of criticisms and dissatisfaction with his quote handling of the war in Gaza end quote um, you know these kind of nomenclatures aside uh, I think it's really important to note that uh, the people conducting these polls and the people analyzing these polls say this is the first time that a foreign policy issue that has not involved, at least to our knowledge, U.S. troops on the ground has been this much of an issue in swaying public approval of a sitting president. Um, and, and I think that speaks to the, the this kind of situation that you described, where we are literally seeing uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocidal acts unfolding before our eyes as the U.S. is actively supporting and uh, preventing others from supporting uh, a ceasefire. I also want to say just something about international law and, and the kind of, uh, you know, rules-based international order that, that people keep touting um, to and, and see what you think about this. You know, much of what the U.S. and its allies were trying to do after the Russian invasion of Ukraine is to claim to save um, 
an international, uh, uh, you know, rules-based order um, in, in which, you know, uh, those types of invasions and wars uh, are deemed illegitimate. Of course, we should remember that is the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, if not its broader history, that have really undermined any notion of a rules-based international order. But I think it's also important to realize that now with what Israel is doing and the complete cover of uh, the United States, um, what we're seeing is if there was any uh, rules-based international order, it has been completely demolished and decimated. And it's not clear to me at all how, you know, people, let alone governments in the global south, how governments uh, uh, in other parts of the world are ever going to take seriously the idea that there is a rules-based international order. Clearly, when you compare the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the response with what Israel is doing in the Gaza Strip, it is very clear and simple. If you are allied with the United States, your actions are not subject to accountability through this supposed rules-based international order. And uh, if you are in somehow antagonistic to U.S. interests and the U.S. government, then your violations of international law will be elevated and an entire coalition mobilized to fund and uh, militarily defeat you and potentially the existence of your regime. Um, and I think this difference is something we really need to keep in mind if we can think beyond this immediate moment about what it means to, to, to have the United States exist in the international arena and however we might want to talk about the you know, a waning power of the U.S. in the Middle East and elsewhere. This is a type of power and role in the international system that the United States is simply unique and able to manifest. Um, and makes it fundamentally different than any power uh, uh, out there in the international system and what it does. I think this is a great place to stop for now, Ziad, and, and to pick up, right? It's this, this question. If this hypocrisy, if Western universalism and, and its hypocrisy is on full display, what then motivates um, members of the international community to continue to participate. I, you know, I hate to say it, but I think that they have a lot of incentive to continue to participate, notwithstanding uh, these conditions, which does not bode well for us. Um, but let's pick that up next time. Thank you very much, Ziad and Noura, for this enlightening discussion. This concludes our November 21st, 2023 episode of the War on Palestine podcast, a regular program of approximately 20 minutes comprising updates on what is happening on the ground in Palestine, as well as some focused analysis on how to make sense of those developments. Today's episode was hosted and produced by myself, Bassam Haddad. It was written and presented by Ziad Aburish and Noor Aliqat. Research for this program was conducted by Anas Al-Khatib. Mais Al-Alami, Sara Al-Yahya, Ranim Ayad, Ala Atiya Metwelli, and Ariane Nushi. Find out more on palestineincontext.org and please note that we have a, a couple of um, teachings taking place next week on Tuesday, one on 
uh, Colonial Narratives Between Myth and Reality by Yusuf Munayir on Tuesday morning at 10.30 a.m. and another on international law and the war in Palestine with uh, three speakers, uh, including Daryl Lee, Noor Aliqat, and Richard Falk. And we will also be having a couple of others the week after on the media. Uh, and uh, how it addresses the current war in Palestine, as well as another on uh, the question of rights, titled Know Your Rights, the Assault on Campus Activism. We hope that you uh, visit us again for all of this information at palestineincontext.org. Thank you all and stay safe. (music) 